Father, we just, again, ask that you would inhabit our hearts and speak to us. Lord, especially this teaching right here, may we dare to believe the reality of the message, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I heard one of my pastor friends share a sermon recently where he shared a story about his friend named Frank. He actually said Frank was a made-up name because he wanted to protect his innocence. But his friend Frank had a major, major problem that he was very concerned about. And that was that Frank had a huge, gigantic butt. (laughs) You see, whenever my friend would try to talk to Frank about God's love, Frank would always say, but... See? See what he did there? As an example, as an example... My friend would say to Frank, you know, God just really loves you. He has such compassion on you. And Frank would say, yeah, but God is also a God of justice. So my friend would try to just impress upon him again. Okay, yes, but, but God is just so full of compassion and grace, and, and he, he delivers us from our guilt and our shame And he delivers us from all of our fears and anxieties even before we do anything. And Frank would say, yes, but I still have to get my act together. So then my friend would again again say to Frank, yeah, but Frank, Frank, listen to me. God has done everything for you to show his love. He sent Jesus to die for you, to sacrifice his love for you, and Frank would inevitably say, but, but I still have to get my act together. You know, Frank is not a whole lot unlike me, perhaps you as well. Just this last week, I was literally writing in my prayer journal, this idea that I have a hard time believing that God's love could really be true. Like, I look at my life, and I say, well, what good does it do for God to love me when I have all of these issues? Like, okay, that's nice. That's all well and good that God supposedly loves me. But at the end of the day, I'm still a broken, weak, sinful, damaged, selfish person who has all these sorts of bad habits. So, like, at the end of the day, what does it matter if God loves me? I can't, I can't fully embrace that truth. There's always strings attached in my mind. There's always big, gigantic buts. You know, for the next few weeks, we are going to address the butt. And we're going to try to get rid of the butts. No offense. (laughs) We're going to try to do it in a way that you might find rather unexpected. And that is, we are going to, for the next five weeks, including today, we are going to look at Adventism in a nutshell. Now, this is a very tall task because there's lots, of, there's lots of teachings when it comes to Adventism. In fact, if you were to go to the Seventh-day Adventist website, Adventist.org, you would notice that there are actually 28 teachings that we 
view to be very important. And so I'm going to try to put them just in five teachings. There's a very practical reason for that, because after the five weeks, I'm going to Australia for two weeks. OK, is that all right? <laughs> so I'm trying to, trying to get it in the little five teachings. No, but I think what we're going to discover is that it all can boil down to these very simple ideas. Now, I recognize as well that when we talk about beliefs, some of us, especially today, we think to ourselves, beliefs, what are those? Like, are you going to be all about dogma? Like, dogma, the idea that we would be dogmatic is a very troubling thing to many people today. Because after all, what good does it do for you to have these beliefs, these, these dogmas, if it doesn't mean anything in your life? And I look at you and I say, okay, that's nice that you believe that, but what do I see in your life, right? The other thing that we often do is we, we break ourselves up into little camps, and we have our dogma, and we say, okay, if you're in this box, then you're on the right team. But if you don't have that same belief, you're on the wrong team. And we fight with one another about it, and we point at each other, and we draw our boxes, don't we? You know, very interestingly, the Seventh-day Adventist church actually started on the exact opposite side of that attitude. We actually thought that we needed to hold everything with an open hand. And we said, you know what? We need to allow for the Holy Spirit to teach us more. We don't think we've, we have it all figured out, and we don't know that we ever will figure it all out. And so we're open to what some of the early Seventh-day Adventists called new light. That's what they like to call it, new light. That sounds a little scary to some people today. But that's what we started as. Because here's the reality, and this is the most important, if we were to boil it down to one little thing, Here's the reality, is that Adventists, Seventh-day Adventist teaching and beliefs are not these abstract concepts that we have to check the box off and say, okay, I got that one, good, I'm in. You see, the teachings that we hold to be important are primarily for the purpose of helping us understand not an abstract propositional truth, but help us understand a person, a living, breathing, if we can attribute that to God, a living, breathing, dynamic person. And just like I will bet if you're married, you're still learning about your spouse, right? I mean, there's a lot to learn, isn't there? Just like we still learn about our spouses, it's a dynamic thing, and we're revising, and we're coming into deeper understandings, so too with God. Like, God is so big, and to think that we could have them all figured out in just a few statements, would be kind of troubling. But if you were to boil down, if you were to, to boil down, people ask me, what do Seventh-day Adventists believe? I finally come up with a satisfying explanation. I've shared this with some of you before, but I've finally come to this singular thought that is all of three words long. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Three words long. It's simply this. At the heart of Seventh-day Adventist teaching is this three-word reality. God is love. That's it. So you can go home now, and for the next five weeks, I'll just repeat that again, okay? <laughs> no, no, no. Here's the thing, though, is that that single idea that's only three words long is so incredibly deep. There is so much more to learn. There is so much more to unpack. There is so much more to experience. 
And so as you and I learn more about God, our capacity to be loved by him and to love him and to love others expands. Because scripture gives us 66 books that seek to unpack and give depth and add layers and and add more and more and more to the canvas. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to unpack those things. And I want to tell you that the degree to which somebody divorces what Adventists teach from the love of God is the degree to which they are moving away from Adventist teaching. Because we stand on this awesome thought that God is love. Now you may say to yourself, well that's nice, but every other church believes that as well. Every other, you know, some other religions do also. And so what's the deal with the Seventh-day Adventist church? Why have a church that just says the same things everyone else says? And I want to submit to you rather humbly that there are, there are teachings that I have come to appreciate that I have not experienced in other particular brands of Christianity that unpack and explain the love of Jesus like we have come to appreciate. I say that humbly. We don't have it all figured out. But I'm just saying, like, there are some things that I have encountered that I have not encountered anywhere else, including what we're going to look at this morning, okay? I see that our time is running short, so we got to hit the ground running. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. You're familiar with John 3.16. This is 1 John 3.16. Check out what the Apostle John says. He says, by this we know love, because he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. We're going to unpack that this morning going forward. But we want to just, this is our launching point as we, as we explore one facet, one little facet of God's love, what I would say is perhaps the most significant part. Because if you want to know God's love, there is one place to go that you will see it most clearly. And John explains that to us right here. John was probably Jesus' closest follower. He was one, if you remember in some of the gospel accounts, he would often recline on Jesus. He would lean on him when they were eating together. And so John knew the very heart of God. He understood who he was. And so he says, if you want to know what love is, because some of us have a vague conception of what love is. It's just this weak, sentimental, wishy-washy thing, right? But if you want to know what love is, if you want to truly know what it is, and by the way, this word for know, it's not simply this intellectual thing. It's a a holistic body, mind, and spirit thing. It it reaches the emotions and the, the psychological experience. If you and I want to truly experience and know the love of God intimately, he says, this is how we know it. Because he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. But you know what? There's something very interesting about this particular construction. Because in the original language, you guys aren't going to nod off on me if I use like a Greek word, right? In the original language, I bet you've used Greek words before. But in the original language, check this out. The word for life is actually the word suche. Oh, isn't that interesting? Are you intrigued? It's the word suche from where we get the word psyche. So what we already understand here is that when John says Jesus laid down his suhe, he laid down his psyche. Other places it is actually translated as soul. Very interesting. 
we're starting to already peel back the layers here because this is something that maybe you have not encountered before. John says, if you want to know what love is, understand that Jesus laid down, not just his life, he laid down his soul. Some of us have a, a, a little bit of a faulty understanding what the idea of the soul is. How could Jesus lay down his soul? What the Bible means when it's talking about the soul is not some immaterial thing that continues to exist after a person dies. What the soul is, is the person's totality of who they are. It's their emotional, psychological, physical. It takes in all of it. We might even say that it is their very existence. And so what John is here sharing with us is that Jesus didn't simply die and go into the grave and his body decomposed. What he's saying is Jesus actually laid down his very existence. So check this out. I want you to go in your mind to a place where we see this the most poignantly. Back to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden that's just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It literally means, in the original language, the olive press. Having such significant analogy to what Jesus is about to experience. You see, Jesus has gone here many times before to pray. Jesus, the Son of God, goes there to connect with his Father. Jesus himself, God, go himself God goes there to connect with his father. But he has now come here for one last time with his closest followers. They have just experienced the last supper in the upper room. And he has now brought 11 because he's lost one of his closest followers who is going to betray him. He brings them out to Gethsemane. But they notice something is really different about him this time. He's staggering. He's without strength and energy. He's stumbling and he's, he's trying to find his place and he, he can't, can't really get his bearings. And then Matthew actually records that he was greatly distressed. The word that is used is actually the most poignant word in the original language for depression. Jesus is experiencing depression, which kind of takes the stigma off of it for some of us as well. Like the Son of God experienced that. And he's, he's, he's stumbling along, and, and then he calls for his three closest disciples, his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John. He says, come with me, come with me. And he leaves the other, how many is that? Eight behind. And he says, Can you just guys, watch here and pray. And he brings Peter, James, and John along. And then he leaves them there. And he goes on to the, the place that he has gone so often to pray. And he falls to the ground. And it's like he's clutching the ground. And he's, he's, it's like he's being overwhelmed by demons. And then he says one of the most startling things in all of Scripture. He says this. My suhe, my soul, is crushed to grief, to the point of death. Check it out. What is Jesus experiencing here? He says, my soul, my soul, my, my suhe, my psyche, my, my very existence is so overwhelmed with pain and agony 
and depression and suffering. You know, elsewhere, Jesus had explained to people, don't fear those who can only kill the body but not the soul. He says, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. So what Jesus has explained is that, again, the human person is made up of all of these parts to come together that make up a single soul existence. And what Jesus is experiencing here in here in Gethsemane, check this out, even before a whip was laid on him, even before a punch had been thrown, even before his beard had been plucked out, as Matthew goes on to record, even before that, he is experiencing such soul-crushing agony. His very existence, he feels, is at risk. You know, so overwhelming was this experience that Luke, the doctor, Dr. Luke, actually in his account of this, says that Jesus was sweating great drops of blood. Have you ever been that stressed out? Have you ever experienced that much pain and agony, such such gut-wrenching pain, that you are literally sweating drops of blood? This is what Jesus is experiencing. We wonder what was that Jesus was experiencing. Why the stress? Why the agony? Why the depression? Why was it that it, it seemed as though his soul was being crushed out? It's very simple. He was experiencing right then and there the weight of all the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment and the blame. He was having it all put on his shoulders. Have you ever experienced embarrassment? I mean, have you ever had your sin exposed and and you turn red and you get flush? I mean, you just, you want to look the other way. You want to crawl up into a hole, don't you? And this is what Jesus was experiencing, except to an infinite degree. He was saying, in essence, all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the the selfishness and the pride, all of it, I'm the blame for it. Right here. I'm the one taking the responsibility for that. And it was crushing him to death. Again, not a whip had been placed, not a punch had been thrown. And yet he was experiencing that. He comes and he, and he actually is so overwhelmed with the grief that he actually prays to his father. He says, Father, if it's possible, if there's another way to do this, he says, let this cup pass from me. What's that cup? The cup, as the Old Testament explains, is the, is the result of disconnection from God. That cup is what happens when... when people don't align themselves with the Father's love, and and the Father gives them what they they choose. And when you and I disconnect and we we choose not to live a life of, of surrender to God, not because God doesn't love us, but because he has a universe to protect, he allows us to reap the results of our sin. And so Jesus is saying, you know, I don't I don't want to, I don't want, I can't experience that because it was so soul crushing. He had been in existence with his father for all eternity. And right then and there, Jesus, in his psychological experience, in his emotional experience, felt literally that his existence was about to come to an end. Some of us may say, well, how does that work? After all, just a few days later, he came forth from the grave. And yet, 
in his psychological, emotional experience, he felt as though this separation was going to be eternal. That's what it was. You know, we all know that physical pain pales in comparison to some of the most emotional trauma we've ever felt. I mean, I think of Michelle's story, losing her little son Raymond. The loss of a child, the betrayal of a spouse. I mean, these experiences go way beyond any physical pain we we can experience. And so Jesus, right then and there, in the garden of Gethsemane, was saying, I am so overwhelmed with this grief. Father, if there's a way to to, to take another route, if there's a way to preserve myself so that I don't have to go to all this agony, and yet he came to that place, and he decided. And one, of, one author has put it this way. It's one of my favorite lines I've ever read. It said, his decision was made. He would save man at any cost to himself. That's unbelievable. He would save man at any cost to himself. Even eternal non-existence. And he saw your potential, and he saw my potential, and he saw our value, and he saw our worth, and he said, their existence is more important than mine. I'm willing to go the distance. And so he said, Father, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. He saw the bigger picture. He did experience there a little while later on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt forsaken of God, and he did it for you and me. There's a quote from one of our early Seventh-day Adventist founders, and this is one of the the most beautiful explanations of this idea that I've come across. She writes, the value of a soul. She was from Maine, by the way, those of you who didn't know that. The value of a soul, who can estimate? Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane and there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Look upon the Savior uplifted on the cross. Hear that despairing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look upon the wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember that Christ risked all for our redemption. Heaven itself was imperiled. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner... Christ would have laid down his life, you may estimate the value of a soul, including your own. I mean, how could we, if we were to go there and be on the ground next to Jesus, and we were to see him bloodied and and torn and stressed and agonizing with pain, could we ever say to him, This is how much I love you. This is how important and valuable you are to me. You say, but Jesus, you don't don't know me. You don't know my, my past. He says, I know it. 
That's why I'm going here. That's why I'm experiencing this. That's why I'm doing this. You say, but, 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 but. I mean, how could you look in the eyes of that person who is literally given everything and say, but I'm not sure. But I have this problem or I have that problem. Jesus says, eh, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I'm doing this for you so I can take away your butts. So that you can experience my love and your heart can be drawn to mine and we'll take care of the rest of that stuff. Like, yeah, don't worry about that. I didn't, I'm not doing this because of that. I'm doing this because of who you are as my child. So time is, is run out on us. It's a good thing about having the kids come back and they keep me short. <laughs> but I just want to appeal to you as we explore the next five weeks, we're going to try to remove all the butts as we learn that God is love to a greater and fuller degree. So that's my appeal to you. If you haven't experienced the removal of the butt, surrender it over to God.